Welcome to Phone Messages, episode 198, Gainesville. My name is Paul Mason Foch. This week, I play message number seven from Julia D'Amico. The message is 16 seconds long and comes from the summer of 1990. Here we go. She's like, well, you know, I, I, you've probably heard about the chaos going on in Gainesville. We just wanted to leave. We're fine. So I'm completely freaked out. I don't know what's going on in Gainesville. And I called my brother, and the first thing he says to me is, I'm going to leave the line, but did you hear about what's going on? So he's going to call me back. But anyway. Oh, I know what that's about. There was a serial killer in Gainesville that summer, and he was murdering women in Every morning when you woke up over a few days within Gainesville, which is a very small town, they were unfortunately discovering another murdered woman. And so it was terrifying. And they closed the whole town down. I mean, I wasn't there. I was up in Chicago, but they had people on managing traffic, closing down streets. You had to show IDs to go places. They had FBI everywhere. It sounds to me like I was reaching out to you because I wanted to talk with you about it. That's yeah. intense. So yeah, let's is. maybe move to a less depressing discussion. When was it that you decided to leave Chicago and why did you decide to leave Chicago? I'd always wanted to live in New York City and I was really interested in film. So I applied to the cinema studies program at NYU. Fortunately, I got in. And then I just went for it. I loved my time in Chicago, but it's funny. I've never missed it. For me, at least in Chicago, even though I lived in Wicker Park, which has places you can walk to, very much the city for me was about driving. Whereas in Manhattan, for whatever crazy reason, I've always felt very safe on the streets as a woman because there are a lot of people, there's traffic, there's a door person, there's a bodega open. I felt like I could move around with more freedom. Like I would walk to get my groceries, I would walk home, I would walk to work, I would walk back. When you moved to New York City, where did you move? I moved into the East Village. And the reason is that there was a journal called Telos. And Telos was started by a group of graduate students at SUNY Buffalo. And among those graduate students was my dad. And his fellow graduate student, Paul Picone, was the editor of Telos and ran Telos out of this building behind a convent. And I lived in his guest room until I found a place of my own. I'd have to like walk through a building and then go through a courtyard and then get to another building. You know, it was a little crazy. And then I would wake up in the morning to the nuns singing. So when you first moved from Chicago to New York, you almost felt just immediately at home? You know, I was pretty broke and my housing situation was always crazy. So after I lived with Paul and I sublet for a little while, I lived for a couple years with an avant-garde jazz accordion player that I met. I lived in what had been the living room of that apartment. And if you were standing in the kitchen, anything I said or did, you could hear. I mean, there was no privacy at all, but it's like it was fine. And then that came to an end. And then I lived with another artist on the Lower East Side. And we split the top floor of a bank building and he was really handy. So he had built it out himself, but I was in the back of this 
what had been the offices of the bank building. So it was a little dark. Um, it was just ramshackle. Like one day I was late for work because the pigeon got in the apartment. So I remember I was like, had no idea what to do. And then I cornered the pigeon at the screen for one of the windows. And then I took a cooking knife and I slit open the screen and like pushed the pigeon out the window and then closed the window. It was all a little zany because her toilet, for example, was one of those old toilets with like a thing on the top, like in the Godfather movie when they plant the gun behind the old fashioned toilet. But the handle that you pull the crank to flush it had disappeared. So Harry put a little plastic baby arm with a hand on it. It was a weird place. Um, the kitchen, you know, was a little crazy and Gary was really into cooking and he didn't want to share a refrigerator with anyone. So we each had our own refrigerator, but we shared a stove and a sink. So describe going into the room, like you'd go into the apartment on the left would be his space or? Yes, he'd walk in. That's right. Actually, it was on the left. It was his space. And that was the whole front part of the apartment. Then we shared a bathroom and then the kitchen and my little living area, which was separate from his living area. Mine was open. And so you didn't really have any privacy except in your bedroom. In my bedroom. Yeah. Initially, I didn't think much of this. I would just sort of prop the door closed. But one night, Harry had a lot of cats and this one poor cat was dying. Um, And one night I was sleeping and he was looking for the cat and he actually came into my bedroom. So actually after that, I started to lock the door. Um, And then the crazier thing was, so eventually this poor cat died. So he wanted to bury it upstate where he was from. And he had like a little country house and a lake And so he put the dead cat in the freezer, which made me really glad we weren't sharing refrigerators. It was a weird, little bit of a weird scene. Julia's reflections on the 1990 murders in Gainesville, Florida, provides an opportunity to transform this podcast into a true crime show. One of the most popular genres in contemporary media and a phenomenon Saturday Night Live satirized last year in a music video called Murder Show. But rather than discuss these serial killings, I want to take on a tragic story involving the bank building where Julia made her home on the Lower East Side. Researching the history of 155 Rivington, I found this striking headline from a 1912 issue of the New York Times. Panic over holdup starts run on bank. The article begins, A few words spoken in Yiddish on Thursday night resulted in a run yesterday on the bank of Adolf Mandel that continued all day and caused such a crowd to gather that a detail of police had a difficult time keeping the street open. The article goes on to state that the rush to remove money was started by a rumor about the bank being robbed. At some point, Mandel's bank was forced to close because in 1914, 
An article describes depositors storming the criminal courts building in Lower Manhattan to demand the district attorney help them retrieve their funds. A year later, Adolf Mandel went on trial for receiving funds while knowing the bank was insolvent. Shockingly, during the dramatic first day of testimony, one of his employees had a heart attack and died on the witness stand. A story in the Times explains that the DA was attempting to show how the teller, George Feuerstein, had accepted a deposit of $100 while the bank was already insolvent. After admitting he received the deposit and identifying the bank ledger, Feuerstein collapsed against the railing of the courtroom. He was rushed to the Hudson Street Hospital, but could not be revived. Ultimately, Mandel was found guilty, with the district attorney showing that he had used nearly half of customers' funds to speculate on Wall Street. However, after serving just 16 months of his 30-month sentence, New York Governor Seymour Whitman granted him clemency with the support of depositors, who believed he was working fairly to repay them. If you feel this podcast owes you something more for the time you have deposited into it, please contact me at pfoch.com. That's P-F-O-T-S-C-H dot com. Many thanks to Julia for unlocking a safe to a past space. And thank you for listening. Talk to you next week.